Over the past year or so, Docker has emerged as the leading container program within the industry. So what's all the fuss about? Well, we bring in the experts to talk about what containers are, when and why you would use them, and what they look like on NetApp Storage. I guess we're calling this one Containers on NetApp. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Pedro Arrow, Brooklyn Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Good afternoon and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast, episode number four. My name is Pete Fletcher, a.k.a. Pedro Arrow, and joining me as always is... The magnificent Glenn Sizemore! And I see we're continuing with this trend. All right, whatever. I'm down with it. Let's go. Let's just go all the way deep in it. Listeners, send me all your nonsense. Let's do this. Yeah, reminder, please send those to me and not to podcast.netup.com. And yes, keep them coming. I got about three in the chain, by the way. So uh, this is not stopping anytime soon. My wife thought last week's was the funniest thing she's ever heard in her entire life. She literally doubled over laughing. (laughs) I thought B. Absolutely. (laughs) That was the one. Yeah. Mr. Sully, how you doing, sir? I am outstanding with a much less enthusiastic introduction, I notice. <laughs> Is that a call for Sully greetings as well? No, let's let's not go that far. We, <laughs> we, Glenn's kind of a, you know, he, he's a unique flower. We'll let him keep that one. <laughs> Fair enough. But if somebody sends them, I'm going to use them. All right. Joining us today uh, to talk about Docker and containers is someone that you may have heard if you're in the uh, V Expert community. Her name is Melissa Palmer or VMIS33. Melissa, how you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Awesome. Awesome. So excited to actually see you in RTP. We usually see you on Twitter, even though you work at NetApp. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to actually see you in person. It is, and this is actually my first trip to RTP ever, so it's been really cool so far. Wow. Well, for the benefit of the audience, uh, for those that don't know, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at NetApp? Okay. So uh, my name is Melissa Palmer. For the last three years at NetApp, I've been a systems engineer in New Jersey. However, as of Monday, I am now a converged infrastructure architect working with the wonderful Glenn Sizemore on FlexPod. Nice. Yeah, no, we, we, we pulled a fast one on the industry, guys. Uh, we, we looked around and said, really? No one's, no one's grabbed her yet? She's, she's available for an architecture job? Yeah, yeah. No, we totally want that. Come here. Yeah, you know, for those of you that play fantasy football, the FlexPod team is starting to be that one team that's in your fantasy football league that you don't want to play. I mean, everybody's like a really, really heavy hitter. So it's, uh, yeah, kudos to the FlexPod team for assembling the perfect team. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's an awesome group, man. And, and you know, talents aside, the thing that makes it work is the fact that there are no egos and there there is no competition inside the team. Uh, when Melissa joined, it was unanimous feedback this this entire week um and i actually haven't told you this yet so i'm gonna embarrass you in front of everybody (laughs) but everyone i've grabbed on the side been like so what do you think there's like oh my god she's incredible she's just (laughs) she's in this meeting it's the first time she's ever been in it and she's just a powerhouse she's dropping knowledge and not taking nonsense i'm like yes oh yeah that's what we want and she's got that east coast attitude represent yep awesome all right well a few announcements before we dive into the docker and containers conversation uh, the first one of which is, as you all know, VMworld 2015 is coming up. If you're interested in what NetApp's doing, there's a post on community.netapp.com that covers everything that's going on at NetApp, the booth, uh, the giveaways, all the things that we're doing, the sessions. Uh, so yeah, go to community.netapp.com if you want to learn about what's going to happen uh, with NetApp at VMworld. Also, Glenn, did you see that ESG did a lab review on All Flash Fast? I did not. Oh, yeah. What, 
What would uh, what's the low and skinny on that? Here, let me pull up this report. So the ESG Lab validation, they basically took side by side tests of a two node all flash fast 8080 EXHA pair, one running 8.3, the other running 8.3.1. Uh, both workloads consisted of 100% random reads with 8K block size. Uh, in both cases, they maintained uh, you know, sub-millisecond response times, but the ESG lab, check this out. They calculated the increase in IOPS at more than 30%. That, you know, I'm actually not surprised at that. That's a huge number, right? We should all it's just... It's gigantic. That's yeah. innovation right there. That's huge with a software upgrade that you're going to pull 30% more performance. Yeah, it's right in line with what Jay was talking about, where you can now have inline compression enabled and get the same performance as you did with 8.3.0. Yeah, right? with, so, with, with compression disabled. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, now you can either gain additional storage efficiency, get the same exact performance, or keep the same storage efficiency as before and get 30% better performance. Yeah, great stuff. Well, it's it, it, my big takeaway is, is you know, we, we had those guys in here, right? We brought Jay in uh, from the Quarantap team uh, yep. covering the release, and Jay told us what to expect. Then we brought Dan Isaacs in, and he talked about the actual changes that went into 8.3.1 around the code path. And, and, and what to expect. And, you know, here we go. Here's an independent survey or an independent analyst firm that's gone out, take a look at, at the code, and the results speak for themselves, guys. All right. Well, transitioning into Docker and containers, if you want to learn more about containers, one of the places you could start would be to register for the Docker Weekly Newsletter. If you're already registered, you may have come across an article written by our very own Andrew Sullivan. Andrew, you wrote an article this week on Docker containers on NetApp. Tell us a little bit about that. So the, the title of that's right, so using Docker containers with NetApp storage was just a really good introduction into containers and the NetApp storage ecosystem, right? And just a, a real simple, real concise example of how to take advantage of our existing technologies, right? So Flex Volumes, NetApp Storage, and Snap Creator to just out of the box. Without having to do anything extra, you can take snapshots of your application and your storage at the same time. So yeah, it, it's uh, not a terribly long read, but uh, hopefully you can get some good information about that. And by all means, if uh, questions, if there's more information, feel free to send me an email, contact me through the private message system on the on the communities, or leave a comment. Absolutely. Well, we got Vemus here too, who knows a little bit about containers. I myself, I've never touched them. I've only seen a couple of uh, white papers online, I've, but I've never actually seen them in action. And so, Glenn, same here. Have you have you played with containers at all? Uh, no, I've been waiting for the thing I've been waiting for actually dropped this week, and I'm sure we're gonna we're we're gonna include that in the conversation. Um, but but the the current ecosystem just wasn't really a good fit for me. So I'm here to learn in preparation of my server uh, 2016 TP3 drop trials that that I'm sure are gonna you know commence as soon as you guys teach me what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, Vimas, why don't you kick this off? Tell us for those of us like me that don't have a great idea of containers. Tell us what are containers. So containers are, um, you can think of, start thinking of a virtual machine and traditional virtualization. You have a whole virtual machine running with its operating system and its applications on top of a hypervisor. In the container world, we really just have an application and its components in several containers spread out through the environment versus everything in one machine that requires a lot of overhead to run and maintain. So so the way I like to describe them typically is leveraging uh, some, some old school technology, if you will. So... For the old hat Solaris Unix admins, right, these are analogous to BSD jails or Solaris zones, right, in that you're doing process level isolation. It's not actually virtualization at all, right? Virtualization is when you're taking a hypervisor, you're instantiating this logical entity known as a virtual machine, 
and you're abstracting the hardware, you're abstracting everything that encompasses a physical server right. into that process. Containers are simply a, a gating, right, or, or a fencing mechanism inside of the Linux kernel. The, the only requirement for using Docker, for using containers, is a Linux kernel that's compatible, right? Well, that's, see, see this is where I gotta kind of qu raise question marks, though. I, I agree that that is the industry standard definition of a container today, but with the fact that I can go grab a nano server instance this morning and instead Instantiate it through Docker, does that definition still hold? So, and forgive me, I am not 100% familiar with Windows, the Microsoft implementation. Yeah. My understanding of what they have released so far is very analogous to what VMware is doing with Project Bonneville, although without the VM fork thing, right? Yeah. In that it is more analogous to a virtual machine that is extremely lightweight but has those same properties than it is something like what the Linux kernel is doing with uh, containers. So, so should we perhaps start using the, the superset term of microservices to describe the, the ecosystem and containers to, to drill into the, the Linux jails specific implementation? Well, so microservices are more of an application design paradigm. Yeah. Right? So if you think of, or if you've ever heard of the 12-factor application, right, the whole thing is to isolate each component of the application into its smallest component. Yes. Right? And there's a number of reasons for that, right? Scalability, ease of maintenance, right? Upgradability, right? All of those different things, which are important. But you can do that today, right? A lot of companies do that today with Amazon AMIs, right? I'm going to take my application, I'm going to push it up into the Amazon cloud, but each one of those AMIs only runs a very small portion of the application. You just have all of the overhead of, well, a full virtual machine, as opposed to just being a process in the kernel that is fenced from the other processes in the kernel by C groups and namespaces. So you're saying with containers, if I was to compare that to VMware, for example, vSphere, a virtual machine in the VMware world has an operating system on there, whether it's Windows or Linux, and then it has the application all built into one virtual machine. With containers, the operating system is shared among all, or, or the operating system is actually sitting on a host, and all of the separate containers are pointing to to one operating system? Is that what you're saying? Sort of. Um, so it's more a shared kernel. Oh, right? a shared kernel. So inside of a container, you can have... Uh, so what, what happens, right? Docker container, you have the image. right? The image is the base file system for all of those containers. But it's only leveraging that for the, the libraries that the actual application, the process inside of there, are using. So it attaches to the kernel. The kernel executes those libraries. But Linux's all have the same base kernel. It doesn't matter if you're running Ubuntu or, or Red Hat or, you know, take your pick amongst Debian, the others, sure. right? It's still the Linux kernel. There are some exceptions, Oracle, with their unbreakable Linux kernel and that type of stuff. But, you know, so, so the kernel, it understands how to execute these instructions. It doesn't matter what the underlying libraries are. It just references those. So you can have an Ubuntu container host that executes containers for CentOS or Red Hat or, you know, pick any of these others. And, you know, one of the things that, that we'll talk about in a few minutes is the, the rise of the micro Linux distribution, right, which is geared specifically for uh, executing containers, right, and the manageability associated with that. Yeah, and speaking of manageability, one of the great things about containers is we don't necessarily really care about them. You know, when we think about a virtual machine is I'm worried about backing up that machine because there's contents in it. I'm worried about my specific virtual machine versions and all these things with the containers. I don't really care. I have some shared storage, like a NetApp perhaps, that I probably right. have my important data on. The container itself, if I need to upgrade it, I can just blow it away and deploy a new one and reconnect the storage. It's a little 
different in the way we're going to think about things compared to a traditional virtualization. So I still, Andrew and, and, and Melissa, I still need some help here because this is, uh, I'm, I'm sensing a fracturing in, in the discussion and I have like an allergic reaction to that, um, <laughs> particularly when, when uh, it, it doesn't seem to be based in any technology. Where, where I'm trying to be able to draw these lines and connect these dots is really around connecting, like, how does this, the Microsoft stuff fit into this? Because you're right, there is the, the, the Hyper-V container where, you know, they, they're, they're kind of cheating. They're doing the same thing that I suspect we're going to hear something about in a couple of weeks from our other friends. But it's, it's a lightweight Hyper-V container that, that or a Hyper-V virtual machine that can be managed through the Docker API. So, so it's, it's contiguous through the Docker experience, but it is still technically using virtualization. However, at the same time, they also have NanoServer, which is legit microservices. It's 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 process level isolation. It's not using a hypervisor. It is, it is. It, it, they're sharing SVC host, right? It's 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 sharing the OS. So we can't say is Linux anymore, even though I agree that's the way that everyone explains it today. But going forward, if if we can't coalesce this terminology. We're going to end up with two competing ecosystems that are essentially doing the same thing. Yeah, and uh, I will, you know, honestly, I have to defer to your expertise. I am not a Microsoft person historically, although I am a Windows user. Uh, stupid Mac. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that being said, right, I am very interested in looking at what Microsoft is doing. And, you know, from our perspective, from the NetApp perspective, right, I think it's great because you know what? I can take the same FlexFole and I can share it out through NFS. I can share it out through SMB3 and both ecosystems can take advantage of that. Yeah, precisely. Well, yeah. So I, again, not knowing containers too much, I started to do a little bit of research and I saw a couple of terms online, you know, Docker con Docker containers. I get it. It makes sense. But what there's so many, so you use the Docker engine is from what I heard to actually produce these containers. But then there are things like Swarm and some of these other products. How do they all fit into the container solution that Docker offers? So Docker itself, like you said, is kind of the engine. And then there's different other components to manage things like um, clustering and orchestration. Because, you know, if I have a host running Docker, that's great, but I need to be able to manage this host. So a lot of the other projects from Docker and Google and other places are focusing on the management layer, the orchestration layer, the clustering layer, making things a little more enterprise-ready and highly available. There's kind of a different way that you would architect a container-based application, whether it be Microsoft or Linux, whatever it's based, versus the way we would do a traditional application today. So today, if you're using Docker, you'll probably have your application architected a way that the resiliency is all in the application layer. So if you yeah. lose a container or a host, whatever, the application will just you know continue to live and you can spin up some new ones. Yeah, and and so Docker describes their their so they have four core products. Uh, they've recently added some others that kind of spread the ecosystem out a little bit. Okay, um, going off of what was what, basically the way they described it at DockerCon, and thank you, Garrett, if you're listening for for making that happen. That was awesome. At DockerCon, they describe Docker Engine right as essentially how you execute a single container. Well, if we look at our application, right, an application is made up of many different processes. So if a single container is one process in the application, then you use Docker Compose, right, which used to be known as FIG. It was integrated into the ecosystem and renamed. So Docker Compose is how you describe the application. right? So container is maybe Nginx as a load balancer or uh, an Apache web server or uh, a, a Java middleware tier and maybe some sort of database that runs underneath that. right? There's all of these individual components that 
you know, as a single process or a group of processes, they're, you know, they're not terribly useful. The application definition is what takes all of those and says, okay, I'm going to deploy my web application and it's going to have two load balancers that sit in front of everything. And I'm going to have four web web servers to load balance across and two middleware servers that they leverage, sure. you know, and multiple database backends. So you take that, right, Docker Compose application definition, and you apply it against Docker Swarm, right? So what Swarm does is it spans one or more physical machines, or virtual, depending on how you're deploying, right? But whatever your, your container hosts are, it spans one or more of those, makes sure that they can all talk to each other, all of those containers can talk to each other, and schedules them across it. So things like, well, I have a, a virtual machine or a host, it's running 10 different containers, maybe it goes down. Right? It's monitoring for that. It sees that. It schedules that capacity somewhere else. So that way you can take advantage of it. Does it do like v like vSphere does? It has high availability and it, it manages all that. Can you do like live migrations across it? No, there there is no live migrations yeah. in containers yet. Uh, and there is a, uh, uh, so at the end of DockerCon, they showcased uh, something called CRIU, C-R-I-U, which is essentially container checkpointing. So very analogous to uh, uh, vMotion, and it's something that uh, a lot of people are excited about because the demo they were showing was Doc, or uh, sorry, Quake, right? They took a Quake server container and moved it from Australia to Europe to the U.S. and back, all while incurring only a small penalty, right? The the game paused because well, you have to move it somewhere. Uh, yeah, it was it was very impressive. Yeah, but is I mean, forgive me for for being a bit of a you know rain on this parade here, but <laughs> like, isn't the whole point of containers and and the whole pets argument to not do oh, that. No, not that like if, if we're going to decompose if well, we're going to decompose services right? to the point well well yes and and i think we should go there but but i want to i want to force him so, to say it out loud so, first so first of all i i will always forgive you for raining on my parade because uh we have a long history of, yes. of me raining on your parade yes, so correct. yeah ne never feel feel guilty about that uh, secondly, yes. Uh, so, Andrew, personally, I have issues with that methodology, um, right? My, my opinion is that most of these applications, right, things that have been created in this container ecosystem, right, they've been architected mm -hmm, from the ground exactly. up, right, as much as we they love that term, it. ground up, right, to take that into account. Yeah. And I make this argument with uh, Amazon all the time, right, in that think of this as being an AWS-type application, EBS, Elastic Block Storage, only has an availability of like three nines. Oh, yeah. Yes, okay. terrible. You know, we're an enterprise storage company. Yep. Three nines, we all just cringed <laughs> in the room, right? But there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of applications that are deployed on top of that. And they don't care. Why? Because it was architected to account for it. Okay. So like a good example would be, let's say I have... Um this critical web server and it can application and it's like a database and two web servers. I might have replicas of it. I might have three versions of this running. Yeah. So if one host dies, I don't care. I have two more running. One will pick up and a third will respawn. Got it. So things are going to be more architected that way that we don't care about things like HA and vMotion necessarily. Okay. See, I wonder I wonder if we're actually going to see that future. Um, th this weekend, I, I <laughs> engaged in some some random Twitter arguments with people just because apparently I've got nothing better to do in my life. But but <laughs> microservices was one of them um, because I, even, even though I haven't had a chance to actually get dirty with this yet, so I, I can't speak authoritatively on how it, how to actually accomplish it, I actually believe in the goal. I think it makes a lot of sense, mm -hmm. right? You know, for, for long-term 
maintainability, and, and for me, that's really the thing. Like, I don't really care about your scalability benefits. It's the fact that, it, that you're building an architecture that is easier to, to maintain. Those benefits make it worth the effort. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the way that I, I think about it and explain it to, to customers myself, and I'm interested in, in both of your opinions on this take, is when you take a look at something like a true microservices-based deployment, particularly uh, with something like containers, you know, you're looking at an approach that has a longer upfront uh, lead time and a, a much higher upfront cost to instantiate that initial delivery. But then once that service is, is shipped, right, making changes is super simple because you've broken yep, everything exactly. down into tiny, tiny little buckets, and each bucket can be worked on independently versus traditional IT, we're very, very concerned with with, with lead times and budgets. So we that's a very expensive way to build applications when you break it out like that. So what we end up doing is building these monolithic stacks, right? So everything top to bottom is in one solution stack. It's one bill. It's one vendor. You install it as one product, typically. That is a lot cheaper, both from an initial stand-up uh, point of view and, and a total investment perspective. However, it is way harder to make changes. So it's way more expensive in the long tail to maintain. Well, I think it depends on why you're doing it. So containers, I don't think, are for everything. You have to have a reason. So like you said, it's really easy to change components. So if you have a proprietary application that's your bread and butter, it might make sense to put it in this kind of environment because I can quickly make changes and quickly roll them out. So it kind of goes back a little bit to the DevOps methodology. If you're using that kind of methodology for an application or environment, you might want to also leverage containers to further enhance that. So actually, that, that's that's a good question. Answer my first question, <laughs> Sully, and then I've got a second one for you because that's a good point, Melissa. No, uh, so what I really want to say right, is that I agree. So I am not a developer, right? I masquerade as one sometimes, but that doesn't mean that I'm good at it. Creating those types of applications is not easy. Right? Yeah. Y- you have to really think ahead. You have to really understand your application. And right, as an organization, whoever's maintaining this has to be prepared for that extra level of complexity, right? which is interconnecting these individual services and it's not all rainbows and christmas trees and unicorns right because you know what happens if you have a network issue right when we look at something like swarm there's a an additional layer of network abstraction right an overlay network that exists in between those hosts right those those docker machine hosts or whatever you happen to be using so that way the vms vms so that way the containers (laughs) can communicate with each other yeah Yeah. Um, so you know, there's there's been a lot of uh, hesitation in the virtualization industry to adopt right that that software defined networking or overlay networking, if you will, right because of the reduced visibility. Another part of the hesitation in the virtualization world is because well, it's super complex, right? And and I love VMware. I've made a career off of VMware, but the NSX implementation is not for the lighthearted. Right. And one thing that Docker has really gotten right is it is completely transparent. You don't even know that you're using an overlay network unless you have really dug into it and and figured it out. Yeah. So that's one of the things that they have really done well. Well, I'd hope I mean, that that's the benefit of being a late mover, right? You get to take a look at what everybody else did before you and and go, well, let's learn all those lessons (laughs) and not hit any of those potholes. I'm sure we'll find some new ones, but. You know. Yeah, and, and they made a really good choice when they acquired Socket Plane, right? Yeah. So, yeah, Socket Plane is really a, a top top tier, right, uh, network overlay. So, so to, to tie back into something uh, Melissa just said a minute ago, and something I would like to to, to get everyone's take on, Pete, you too, man. Yep. What we know today, where these products are, give me some some guardrails for the listeners about when 
what type of project or what type of initiative should they be, you know, sitting up in the meeting going, you know, maybe we should get Docker in here. Maybe we should, this sounds like a good fit for containers and and what types of projects should they be speaking up saying, yeah, I know Docker's hot in the news, but that's a terrible idea. We just want VMs. Yeah. and, And adding to that question a little bit is, when you're looking at Docker for a specific project, what are the th- what are the areas where you're going to compare it to some of the other options? So first of all, what you don't want it to be is that legacy application that's running on Windows 2000 that <laughs> the guy who wrote it like left the company 10 years ago and you need to do something with the server. Yeah, you should P2V that puppy. You should not Dockerize it. That's a really, really bad candidate. So stuff like that, ancient things that you don't have the in-house expertise to change the application or code should be avoided. Ooh, I like that distinction. If you don't have the in-house expertise to change the code, put it in a VM. Or if you don't want to pay someone to do it. Yeah. What do you think of that, Sully? I agree, right? It's just taking a monolithic application and shoving it in a container does not make it microservice enabled. Yeah, right? but, but but let's just say, just for the sake of argument, right? What if Microsoft went through SQL Server, right? SQL Server is a big monolithic app right now, but if you actually break it down, there's like 30 different components. Technically... They could decompose that thing into 30 different components and then give it back to me in that, in that distributed architecture. But would it really be worth the time on both parties? Is it worth their time to do that? And is it worth my time to deploy it like that? So as, as somebody who was a SQL Server administrator um, for, for a number of years, I think that that would be interesting because mm-hmm. right now you can do things like, so take, for example, the full text search engine inside of SQL Server. Yeah, that's right. One, yeah. yeah, it's a single service. So what happens is you can only index so much stuff, right, before you have to start throwing more hardware at it. Well, imagine if I could start spinning up more of those full-text search containers, right, to add more capacity to do just that. So it, it makes that individual component scalability easier. Now, whether or not you should incorporate it into your, you know, hey, I'm sitting down, I'm going to create a brand new application, or we're going through and, and re-architecting our existing application. Yeah. Right. Ultimately, that's up to, well, the individual organization and how they feel about it. I think we see a, a lot. There is a huge amount of interest in containers from the development community. Right. And it's not because of the application, right, the 12-factor application yeah. methodology or microservices or anything like that. It's because it makes developer lives easier. Yeah, I think containers right. are popular with developers for the same reason that HCI is popular popular with virtualization administrators. Oh, yeah. Like, there's a perception that I'm going to get rid of these stupid infrastructure guys and it's just going to, like, dance on my fingertips. Oh, but more than getting rid of those, the ability to have scalability, right, or mobility to actually move your application without having to have the concern of the underlying operating system and, and up doing upgrades, but having that complete freedom to actually move just the application without fear of bringing your application down seems pretty attractive. Yeah, there, there's a lot of you know, development organizations that really like containers because it it makes onboarding, it makes, you know, bringing in either a completely new hire or a new developer to a project basically simple, right? Yeah. Here, here, here's a container, here's your development environment, right? It took me all of six seconds. It, it took me longer to say that than it does to actually get it. Mm-hmm. They automatically have an environment that's capable of building the application, right? You don't have to worry about de- library dependencies. You don't have to worry about any of those other things, right? It's all instantly available. Right? As you roll through the development process, right, if you really integrate containers into your development process, then you can do things like, okay, I committed code, right? GitHub triggered you know, my Jenkins server to pull the code and build a new container, right? It runs all the automated tests against it. Oh, something failed. It kicks out that exact container and says there was an error here. 
So the developer can go in, turn that container back on, and they see exactly what happened, right? It makes that debug, it makes that troubleshooting process just greatly simplified. Well, yeah, and, and I'll agree with you that, that, that it does assist there, but, I mean, honestly, which, that process you just described, that's DevOps. That's not containers, right? That, that's a way of building applications where, where ops and, and dev are working together in conjunction. No, like you, you can do that with virtualization. So you're taking that a step further if you want to call it DevOps, right? DevOps would be actually deploying it into production, right? This is just continuous integration, right, mm -hmm. where... The developer is writing code uh, as, right. yep. as they committed. It's being tested and validated. Good call. Right? Yep. And there's nothing that says that you can't right take that another step out and do DevOps with it, or you don't just. And I, I think what we see now is uh, today right is a lot of companies who their developers are using containers, operations. It's it's a standard application, right? The same way they always have. They're just improving developer efficiency. Exactly. And if Team A is using one brand of hardware and Team A is Using a different brand, we, we don't care with containers. Like maybe one's slower than the other, and you know, Team B is the QA team that no one likes, so they have the really old hardware. Yeah, it'll still run, and it's not an issue of oh, do I have some kind of incompatibility somewhere in this stack? It it just works. Well, sticking with Glenn's question, the first answer I got so far, he asked if if there are times when you would choose Docker as as a, a project in your environment to, to deploy versus another yeah, preferred preferred because you know obviously they're both compatible with everything, yeah. but like. For, for the listeners that just don't have time to become experts in this, give us some cliff notes. Give us some guardrails. What would be some, some, some signs w that would make you go, we should be steering this direction, and what are some warning signs where you'd go, maybe that's not the best idea just yet? So I, I think if your application is already dependent on several independent services, so let's take a look at NetApp's own WFA. Right, WFA is a, a Java-based web service and a MySQL-backed database. Right, you know, there's nothing that says, and and this is Andrew speaking. Right, I have no no uh, insight into future products plans or, or yep. features or anything like that. So, but you know, let's say for example, they could separate that out into two separate containers. Would that be beneficial just doing that? Well. Probably, right? Because now you're completely isolated from the parent operating system, right? I, I think so. WFA has has does have Linux compatibility in 3.1, right? And it's deployed as an RPM. Does it have to be Red Hat only? Well, no. They can put it into a, a Red Hat or a CentOS uh, container, right? And now it can be portable across, well, the entire Linux ecosystem. So just by doing that, you gain some efficiency. Now the trade-off in that particular instance is the database, right? Containers are known for for being ephemeral in state. Historically, you don't store your your persistent data in that container. Um, so this is where where right we feel NetApp has a really good fit because well, who what have we been doing for years, right? Yeah, persistence, data <laughs> yeah. management. So, you know, and it also plays really, really well with the data fabric. Data has mass, right? It's one thing, as you mentioned earlier, Pete, where, you know, yeah, I can take that container, I can move it from my developer laptop to, you know, test and dev to production. Now right. I need to burst up into the cloud. But what about all the data? And this is where the data fabric, where you can go from cloud on tap and test and dev, right? Bring it on-prem for production, right? Push it out into cloud with NPS or cloud on tap, right? to go back into that burst state, right? It's all the same data on tap, right? You can move it around, right? The data fabric actually becomes real. It doesn't become real, it is real. You know, <laughs> we're shipping it every day. But the, so if I boil that down, if I try to take all of that knowledge and succinct it down into one message, I, I, I think what I'm walking away with is a, a two-step decision process. One, 
is this an application with active development and or a means to be updated, Mm -hmm. right? That's the first requirement. Two, it's an application that currently does not have persistence requirements baked into the application. If those two are true, then containers are a very healthy alternative. If either one of them is not true, then virtualization today is probably a better fit. You know, and, and of course, we're working to fix that, but you know, it, it is 2015, right? We're, we're, we are where we are today. Our customers need to help right now. We can, we can help them again in the future. But for now, is, is, that, is that kind of the guidelines? Is that the guardrails? And yeah. if your application is going to benefit from agility and scalability. If this is an Good application point. that you're designing to run on two servers and that's all you ever need, why waste the time and effort on doing something like this? Yeah, Yagni. So if, if you can link back scalability and agility to business requirements that you can use to build a case on why you should go Docker with this because it will give us these benefits, therefore uh, we could deploy faster and quicker time to market, that kind of stuff, that's the kind of things you should be looking at too. Now, I'll, I will add in one caveat that data persistence is, can be done at any time. It's the manageability that, that really gets complex when you're using just vanilla containers, mm. right? And, and managing, right, that, that Docker volume that you attach to it, if you're just creating a, a standard Docker volume, it exists on the host that's executing the container. And that's the only place it exists. So either you're having to manage, right, when I want to move my container or something happens to that host or any of those things, right, you're having to manage that yourself. And so I will add on that. Uh, so so Andrew, right, really hopes that containers become an application deployment mechanism for a lot of server-based applications. Oh, you and right? me both, brother. Because, be awesome. and, and look at it this way, right? Microsoft in particular. I love Microsoft, right? They make a lot of really good products, right? Exchange is so hard to set up. Yeah, let's kill the MSIs and, and EXEs, guys. I oh, yeah. want to kill all yes. the installers and let's just ship some some nano instances. Like, the, yes, the dystopian future of IT. I can't wait. Let's get there. All right. Well, now we understand what containers are. And uh, we've even got some examples of when it might be appropriate to deploy containers in your environment. Let's talk a little bit about the container ecosystem. I'm curious what type of manageability products are out there for containers? There's been a rise of really tiny Linux distributions that they're designed to just be tiny, lightweight, and basically run Docker containers. Um, One of these distributions is one called CoreOS, and they basically formed themselves to run Docker containers. But they took it a step further and came out with their own container runtime called Rocket. Now, with Rocket, they introduced a standardization idea called AppSy. And they're trying to come up with a standard format for containers. So you don't have to worry about, I have a Docker container, a Rocket container, a different flavor of container. So everybody can kind of focus their development on one thing that can truly be used in every platform. Okay. Yeah, and, and you know, continuing on with the micro Linux uh, uh, thought process, right? The goal here, and particularly if we look at things like CoreOS, right? CoreOS is, is it's just a kernel. Right, as I talked about earlier, right, really the only thing you need to run containers is a conter- is a kernel that's compatible, right, 3.8 or above, really 3.10 to get all the features. But once you go beyond that, it's manageability around the containers themselves. And this is something that CoreOS uh, uh, does really good. They were one of the first, right? They created something called ETCD, etcd, which is just a distributed key value store that you can use to say, well, I, you know, I want to keep metadata about this node. Maybe this one has SSD disks. This one has, you know, SATA drives. This one has SAS drives. So leveraging that metadata, I can tag my applications to run in certain locations. Uh, 
CoreOS was one of the first ones to do with with their plugin called Flannel to do the overlay networking, right? And Kubernetes actually is one of the first things Kubernetes. that they, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the first first uh, OSs that they ran on top of was CoreOS for simply that, and you know that eventually evolved into Tectonic and, and all of that, which we can talk about in a minute. But you know, CoreOS isn't the only one. Uh, Red Hat, our friends just down the street, right? They have their distribution project Atomic, and they have all the benefits of Red Hat in there. So things like SE Linux integration. Mm -hmm. Right, taking advantage of all of their uh, miscellaneous uh, management tools, OpenShift integrations. Right, and then we, we also have Mesos. Right, Mesos is uh, is particularly interesting for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is because you can use a Mesos cluster to run both Docker containers as well as Hadoop jobs. Right, so you can literally target the same cluster. Right and run both types of jobs inside of there. So it's it's kind of a, a really interesting. I'm looking way at Glenn's face right now, and he's like, "Well, no, no. So, so this is actually what I think the Docker and container movement's problem is. They've taken like these. I, I love them because they are all in on on their methodology, right? Right down to the management layer, right down to how this thing is managed and deployed. They are taking a microservices approach, and they've got different teams working on different parts of the stack, and they're each staying inside their little vertical, and they're and working container exactly inside <laughs> their little container, and and they're working together to to together solve the problem. However, and and I know that this is a terrible thing to say out loud on the internet, but <laughs> without a centralized common thing that everyone's familiar with without something like a vCenter for Docker. Yeah. And yes, you can hit me with the bat for saying that out loud. Like doesn't that doesn't that hold it back? Because it does. It like you just does. you just rattled off twenty five different company names. Yeah. Like I don't have time to keep up on Docker and everyone knows what that is. Like how how is this ever going to get critical mass with with operations in particular if it stays this fractured? Yeah, so there's a number of areas, and this is one of the areas where there's a lot of development going on in the ecosystem. Uh, so from Docker's perspective, there's Project Orca, which was announced at DockerCon. It's a, a very early product, which basically maintains, right, gives you a, a nice, pretty GUI, Windows guys, right, for looking at and managing your containers-based applications. Um, hey, Windows is getting a lot better. I can't tell you how happy Windows 10 and their resizable command prompt makes me. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. I was giddy like a little schoolgirl when I saw that I could do that. Long time coming on yeah. that one. Anyways, um, so after that, you have you know all of the other ecosystem products. Uh, Kubernetes right, has a, a basic GUI. Uh, Mesosphere, which is a... Much like Red Hat is, uh, you know, a, a company on top of an open source product, yeah. Mesosphere does the same thing, right? They extend Mesos and add in uh, Marathon, which is a management interface for all of that. Yeah, but Aaron, Kubernetes and Mesos, I mean, th those are two technologies that are older than I am. No, Kubernetes was is new. Uh, so Kubernetes just hit 1.0 a couple of weeks ago. Yep. It was actually spun out of Google, yeah. formed off of the Borg, right? The Google Borg and that whole concept. So, yeah, it's, it's not... Uh, the technology, right, containers, quote-unquote, are relatively old. Uh, Google was actually the first ones to begin deploying it back in 2006 or eight, something like that. Um, it didn't get incorporated into the mainline kernel until 3.0 or 3.8. Yeah, they've been doing it for a while. Um, what we see now is, you know, VMware, vSphere, vSphere is owned by VMware. Yes. Right. There's been a handful of attempts to make additional or a new management GUI by a third party for vSphere, but... Nobody's been successful. Yeah, why? Yeah, not so. So yeah, 
you know, they have a captive audience, right? Containers are an open source solution. We're seeing that, right? And it is, it's a relatively new technology, right? Docker just, just came out two years ago. Uh, so the ecosystem, the customer base is trying to figure this out. And part of that goes back to, and again, if we look at DockerCon, right? One of the big themes at DockerCon was Docker is ready for production. Well, if you kind of read underneath that, that headline there, that means that, well, yeah, sure, we, we see widespread adoption inside of development organizations, but operations hasn't really seen a lot of, right, we're not seeing containers in, in operations yet. And because of that, those tools that operations people typically expect, vCenter, yeah. right, SCVMM, right, all those type things, they just don't exist. Yeah, well, this may be my unprofessional opinion on it then, or my uneducated opinion, I should say. Until there is some sort of management interface, I just can't imagine companies using it large scale. I, I might be wrong you on know, that. It, I'm getting dirty looks from Vemus, no, no, but no, no, no. <laughs> it, you know what? It, it, it's kind of like the same problem with like OpenStack right now. If the company is big enough, it has its own engineering power, it absolutely Bingo. can run it in production. But for the everyday enterprise, you're correct. Until there's vCenter for Docker or an yeah, equivalent we, that we can ha just hand off to an ops. She like, winced when she said that. Just, I, did, just I did so, wince. Yeah. Yeah. Until we can just hand it off to an ops team, you know, the average kind of customer isn't going to use it because they don't have the time to engineer something themselves. Yeah, that's the thing, right? I mean, like when you said earlier, like the, the, these, this is containers are open source and they're being managed as open source. For, for a lot of operations, open source is significantly more expensive. It's 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 not it's not easier. It's not less money. It is a different way of doing it, and and there's a reason it's not tremendously popular with with the vast majority exactly. of enterprises. Exactly. It's freaking hard. You're responsible for everything. It's not easy yet. Yeah, there's no wall that you throw work over. You're responsible for mm -hmm. absolutely every single element, and and it it's just it's very very fractured. We in my opinion, I think we need a couple rounds of Hunger Games in here. Uh, we we need the, some of these companies to to try by fire and fail and and get to the the you know the champion of of them all. No, yeah. I, absolutely. I don't I don't disagree. I 100% agree. Actually, um, and I think that we are approaching the stage where enough external entities, right? The, those uh, us big you know old yeah. school players are starting to take notice, right? And it's going to be somebody's got to come up with a solution that we can all get behind as far as that management paradigm is. Yeah, because that's, that's the bummer for me, man, because I'm super into the concept of microservices, but I'm an ops guy, right? That's my whole background, all my experience, everything I've done in my life has been in ops or operations. I'm not a real big developer guy, right? I just don't understand that side of the world. And I look at this and go, I see the resource utilization, I see the change management benefits, and I see the isolation and security benefits. But the operational model is so severely broken that no, I'm not touching it with a 20-foot pole. Not yet. Yeah, it's very nascent. Um, and this is one of those areas where uh, I'm actually really interested to see how Microsoft's influence is going to affect that. Yeah, me right. too. Microsoft is, is you know, they're a 30-year-old company with a background of, well, operations. This is what they do, uh, right. So, yeah, they are them being a, a, if not the number one, then the number two contributor to the to Docker, right, can only mean good things from that uh, that operations manageability aspect. Sure. So we named a bunch of companies. Is there are, are there any uh, ecosystem players that that you guys, uh, Vmes and or, or Melissa or Andrew, anyone out there that we haven't given a shout out to that we should because they're doing something neat? Um, I, I will. Uh, so I alluded to uh, Tectonic earlier. I will just close out that thought. So Tectonic is 
Kubernetes on CoreOS with commercial support. Yes, exactly. So I can deploy this and call someone 24 hours a day and be like, Help me. I'm now the we're operations talking. person and I comes with a throat to choke. Yeah, so that, that, comes with a throat to choke. And I suspect that's going to be one of the first major players in that uh, uh, manageability arena, right? Yeah. Much like Red Hat came along, they did the the support on top of open source and they created all of their, their management tools and interfaces. I think that they're going to be, Tectonic is going to be one of the first along those lines as well. Cool. M- Mesosphere is right up there with them as well. All right. I swear to God, I'd heard about Kubernetes before this whole container thing happened, but I'm probably just remembering like some old. It's some Greek some thing. 80s movie. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's some Greek name or, or mythology. Yeah. Junk. yeah. I don't remember. That what was it like is. some Solaris change management system. I'm going to call it like Sisyphus. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a bad disease. That's syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Right, you, so. you were in the military. Did they not show you those videos when you first joined? Okay. I was and in the Air Force, not the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, we do work at NetApp, and you did write an awesome article on containers on NetApp. So why don't you tell me, if I was a NetApp customer, how I could actually take advantage of some of the, the things that NetApp brings to the table for Docker and containers? Absolutely. Uh, so the most obvious thing is to simply attach a volume to your container, right? Uh, so... You know, create your, your LUN, iSCSI, Fiber Channel, whatever it happens to be, attach it to your host, and then pass that through to the container using the dash V option on your on your Docker run command. Uh, you can do the same thing with NFS as well, right? So uh, mount your NFS exports, right, dash V when you run your, your container, and it has full access to that NFS mount. Um, that being said, right, you have the same same benefits, right? Cluster data on tap, all the storage efficiency, all of that that sits underneath there. You can do the same thing with, with E-Series, right? If you're an E-Series customer, you can leverage LUNs. Uh, you know, storage grid is, is interesting because most of the applications that we're talking about here, uh, you know, this, this web scale stuff, right? The Amazon, a- Amazonian, right? Amazon uh, generation of of applications are familiar with the concept of object-based storage, right? Yeah. So, hey, we happen to have this product called Storage Grid that's actually really good at that, mm-hmm. right? With the the geographic replication, right? Where it understands that I am in different areas of the world and, and will distribute across that and those types of things. So, yeah, we the portfolio fits in really well with this. Um, now, where it starts to get interesting is, you know, as we've been talking about already, right? The difference between developers and operations, Right, so developers look at things and they say, "Well, I want to manage everything from inside of the application." Right, so there's nothing that says that you can't, for example, take a, a container and essentially make it as the abstraction back into the, the storage. Right, so hey, mm-hmm. NetApp storage container, go and take a snapshot of my of my volume. Right, and I'm going to quiesce the application and then do that from inside of there. So from an application centric view, you can absolutely have that type of, of integration, and you know, I don't want to call it a snap manager for containers, but it's that same sort of concept, right? Snap manager is something that is managed by the application owner. They're the ones who trigger their own snapshots. You might as well call it that because you know eventually we're going to have it. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I I have no idea at this point. So what would I do today for data protection? If I wanted to to do some backups of my data on containers, what what utilities am I using from NetApp to make that happen? Yeah, so Snap Creator is probably the best one to use right now from an operations perspective perspective because you can do things right there's a linux plugin for snap creator you can go in and you can use the standard docker exec execute docker exec or docker attach commands to reach into your application your containerized application and trigger operations to quiesce 
right? And then you just associate the volume that it's with. So an operations person absolutely has that ability right now. And it plugs into the same framework that we've had for five, six years, whenever Snap Creator yeah. emerged from professional services. So, you know, really, really great, really powerful tool in that respect. So you can absolutely take advantage of it there. Uh, another great thing is because, you know, the way we're architecting these containers is they're always going to be on somewhere. So we're never going to take them down and do maintenance on our Docker system. That's just not going to happen. So, of course, with cluster data on tap, we have our non-disruptive operations. So our storage is always going to be online. We don't have to worry about taking it down for maintenance or anything like that. Also, it's really super easy to scale a cluster data on tap cluster. So when I know, okay, we're going production with this application, I need to add an all flash FAS to my cluster to make this work, it's really simple to do. Yeah, you know, and I imagine that's got to be even more important with with a distributed architecture like that, it, particularly if you're using that dash V switch and you're bringing in persistent storage into these these ephemeral containers. Like that storage can't go out. Yeah, it can't. it's got to <laughs> be there because in this instance, not only like are you are you dealing with with a scale out application where you've got multiple different instances, but the whole architecture calls for this thing to be restarted at any point in time. So that, that, that persistence layer is just, it's, it's got to always be there. It can't ever not be. Yeah, we're at an age where <laughs> we just expect it to be there. There's no more outages, right? So this, to have non-disruptive operations, I don't think you could do it without technology like that. Yeah, so, so one of the other use cases that, uh, that I really like is extending an internal tool that we call Code Easy. Uh, so, so Code Easy. Oh, I love this story. Yeah. Yeah. So Code Easy was created uh, for the ONTAP developers. Yeah. Right? So uh, hold on. Before we go too much further, let, let let's actually like set this up. So Andrew, for the past what is it? Three months? Four, four months? Five months? How long have you been? Ha, have you shifted now? Uh, it's been about three months. Yeah. So over the past three months, Andrew has effectively been the Docker TME within NetApp. Um, he he uh, has disengaged from his. Day to day virtualization tasks. He's still on the VMware team, but but uh, he he is primarily focused on containers and Docker in particular. And what I'm most excited about is, in true TME NetApp fashion, you ran directly to product ops, went and found engineering, and found projects where we could implement this today. So with that. <laughs> Go. Yeah, uh, and I'll talk about uh, so the the barnacle team inside of NetApp in just a moment, and and what we've been doing. But uh, so yeah, one of one of the really interesting use cases, right, was CodeEasy. Uh, so CodeEasy was originally created to facilitate developers, right, getting to work faster. Uh, so if we look at the ONTAP code base, it's massive, right? Exactly what you would expect. It's like gigabytes of code and all these other things because, you know, we're, we've created an OS at one point, right? ONTAP 7. Yeah. Uh, so it's this huge thing that would take a developer upwards of two hours to check out. Right, so they come in, they sit down, they they log into their computer, they they do the checkout thing, and then they go get a cup of coffee and go socialize <laughs> and go for a run, and yeah, Code Easy was created, and it was originally called Bam Bam to leverage FlexClone technology, right, where Ooh. the 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 code base is constantly checked out, and then FlexClones are just cr taken of that volume, and then they get mapped into the developer's workspace. <laughs> That's really nice, That's awesome. right? And, and it it reduced that uh, that two hour time frame. I want to say it was. Uh, something like 90 minutes to two hours, but it reduced that time frame down to about four minutes. Sounds about and right. And three and a half of those minutes were actually, they, they wrote some custom C to go in and repermission everything because it was owned originally by whatever user and they yeah. would repermission it to the user who had checked it out. Taking that and now wrapping a container around it so that you literally 
I need Docker run and it goes in the background and it creates you know, a, a flex clone and things of that nature. So these are the things that we are really interested in being able to do is extend that technology and really be able to take advantage of it. Yeah, so even 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 independent of the fact that, you know, guys like me are looking at this going, eh, maybe not just yet. It doesn't mean that it's it's not ready. It just means it's not ready to be on the front door. It's a backdoor mm-hmm. technology right exactly. now. Exactly. Yeah, and, and right now, right, we can we can mimic that through essentially a wrapper script that goes and talks to the NetApp and flex clones and exports and mounts and then fires up the container. But Docker is doing some really interesting things with their Docker volume drivers, right? They're they're not quite there. They're uh, th- there's only five primitives in that driver, right? Create, destroy, mount, unmount, and path. So there's nothing that says clone, right, or snapshot, or or any of those types of things that we can take advantage of yet. But it's it's things that we're very interested in doing. I, I really so I really hope that that implementation comes at that level, and we don't all run off and fork and come off with our own drivers. Because from a customer perspective, like having a, a single implementation like that is just so much more preferable. Well, it's funny because there's a lot of analogies that can be drawn between the Docker volume drivers and Sender, right? On on one yeah. side, it's yeah. a it's a homogenous set of APIs, right? Sender create a volume, Sender yep. mount a volume, mm-hmm. Sender snapshot a volume. On the back side, each one of the vendors creates a driver that just works for their particular. Well, SMIS way. is the same thing, right? Absolutely. You know, we have an established standard that says what the exposed APIs are and and how you submit a request to that API. On the back end, each vendor is free to do whatever they have to do to make that happen. And it's just, it's the right model. It's the right thing for everybody. How, how is Docker uh, in terms of their cadence for releasing uh, updates? So uh, refreshing, I, I will put it that way. Right? <laughs> so, so NetApp, like, like any you know, big company, sometimes we can be slow. I hate the analogy of turning the battleship and, and all of those <laughs> other in that, in that ilk. But so Docker has a two-month release cycle. Right, so 1.6 to 1.7 to 1.8, each one of those is two months in between. That's ridiculous. Right? So they they move very very quickly. I bet but they're developing with Docker containers. They might be, and that's why they can do it that fast. They absolutely saying. are. They, there's, there's several. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can you can build Docker using Docker, which creates this weird chicken and egg thing. Yeah, how do you even know? Like, was the build successful? Where's the where's the problem? <laughs> Did we build yet? Yeah, that's a very interesting. It didn't go. Where's Doc the problem? Inception. Um, yeah, exactly. We need the inception. Yeah. <laughs> so any any uh, any other uh, work where we're we're actually using containers internally inside NetApp? They're they're in use all over the place. Uh, really? Yeah. So development teams they they love them, right? We see them all over the place. There's miscellaneous other things that I can't talk about right now. Man, but, our uh, guy. Yeah. There there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's happening. Um. So so I, I said earlier the Barnacle team. Uh, yeah. It, it does stand for something that's vaguely container related that I can never remember. I always uh, think SpongeBob whenever you say that. Yeah. We we keep in it was thought up in line with the you know docker whale you know shipping containers right barnacles do barnacles stick to whales i don't even know that i think so yeah i think they stick to anything they're they're like little little crustaceans so but uh so so our team has four focus areas uh so the first one is just doing evangelism right inside of netapp for developer efficiency leveraging containers okay check right on a podcast yeah yeah. making making good job yeah making developers develop faster okay right or helping them not making them Uh, So the second one of those is just extending that into the IT processes that they use, right? Continuous integration, so on and so forth. So, you know, making IT, right, or helping IT to facilitate developers to 
make them develop faster. The third one of those is working with internal products and where appropriate, right? Hey guys, you know, hey, hey product manager, are you aware of these container things, right? Have you thought about how you might be able to use these? Just drawing, bringing awareness into the application architects and the product management teams of what containers are, how they can benefit from them so that we can get them thinking about it in the future. Yeah. Uh, and then the fourth area, which is where I spend the vast majority of my time, right, is on the public side of things, right? And that's both, uh, so I, I say public in air quotes for those who can't see me, right, because there's internal public and external public. So internal public is doing things like talking with our sales teams, educating sales teams about what containers are. When you're when, when customers are talking about it, this is what they're talking about. And if you need help, right, reach back to, to, to me or to, yep. you know, somebody on our team and, and we'll absolutely get help for that. And then, of course, the, the outbound messaging, right? Going in the, the blog post that we did, and there's others that are in the pipeline, and, and just helping customers, right, to understand that, hey, you can still take advantage of NetApp storage. Now, that being said, right, there is a bit of a, I don't want to say a hurdle, but, you know, who, who leverages, you know, who manages enterprise storage arrays? Operations, right? Who's been using containers for the last two plus years? Developers. So the, there's this little bit of, uh, uh, I don't want to say technology, but terminology. That's the word I was looking for. Terminology uh, uh, bridge or gap that we have to bridge and helping the two teams talk, right? Yeah, man. That, that, that's that, you know, you that's and I had everywhere, a, though. It's yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Listeners, guys, if, if you really want to see, like, what the bleeding edge of this stuff is, forget DevOps, man. Go look up ChatOps. <laughs> like, th there are some teams out there that, that make me want to go back and, and be an ops guy again. I'm kind of I'm kind of getting the itch. Like, I want to I want to go carry a pager and run an infrastructure because because this is some exciting freaking technology. A, a pager. pager. What is this, 1988? <laughs> Shut up, man. Last time I had one. Andrew. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> Take a note. We need to buy Glenn a pager. Yeah, we can page him randomly at 3 a.m. Whatever, everybody knows. Do they have an app for that? What do they call it now? And Melissa, you're an SE. What do they call it? We don't have pagers. They we have cell phones and people call us. It's called SMS. <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably true. Yeah, you're just on call service, whatever. Yeah. All right, well, what's next for Docker with NetApp? I mean, certainly resources. Do we have anything? I, I The blog that you did was awesome. That was my first sort of introduction to Docker. Are there any other things on the uh, horizon? Are you going to be writing any white papers on this? Any uh, solution architectures? Absolutely. There's a lot of things that are in the works. Um, so we should be having some more blog posts coming up. Uh, I've got a number of pokers in the fire, so to speak. I don't want to talk uh, talk out of turn because I have no idea what the time frames look like because we have this little thing called Insight coming up. You know, yeah, I've heard of that. Apparently a lot of people are occupied getting ready, making sessions. So yeah, yeah, I'm not one of those people. Yeah, I don't I don't want to commit to a timeline or anything like that, but there is a ton of stuff that is in, in flight and hopefully will be hitting soon. Um, and if you're looking for a quick overview of Docker and NetApp with Docker, in the Tech on Tap newsletter in May, I wrote an article on NetApp and Docker. So that's a really kind of quick overview on what it is. Yes, absolutely, and that's something that we will link to in the uh, yes, the show notes. Oh, yeah. As well, for NetApp employees, there are field portal presentations that are available uh, so that you can you can get a quick overview for that. Uh, anybody, customer, right, NetApp, NetApp employees, welcome to reach out to me, and I'm happy to have a conversation with them. Yeah, right? I, I do uh, at least two or three of those a day the, these days. So happy to talk with anybody and everybody that that wants to. And just a reminder, Andrew will be at VMworld in a couple of weeks to talk about Docker and containers. So if you're there, make sure you swing by the NetApp booth. Yes, please do. I, I talked with our. Uh, 
our, our VM World's uh, overlords, I mean managers, I mean uh, the awesome event staff, <laughs> and uh, ask them if there was any possibility that we could add a containers uh, uh, specialty. So uh, hopefully in the near future, if you go and do a, a Ask the Expert or a Talk with the Experts uh, uh, track or, or meeting, right. you'll be able to select containers. Uh, and likewise with the VIP meetings if you are interested in those. Awesome. All right, you'll also be at NetApp Insight. I know you've got a couple of sessions there. So uh, if you're looking to learn about containers, obviously go to docker.com first. They've got some great information. <laughs> They're a great place to start. Yeah, that might be a good place to start. <laughs> but when you want to learn how NetApp adds major value to it, you definitely want to come and check out Andrew's blog on community.netapp.com as well as vmiss's blog. Awesome. Anything else, guys? We could go on for hours about this. <laughs> Literally, I have days worth of content. Another hour. Another hour. Come on, Pete. Commercial break. We're going to go. Okay, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back for hour two. <laughs> I do have a two-hour insight session, but it's on vRealize. And yeah, that, that's, that's a long time to talk. Yeah, it is. Awesome. All right, well, that music tells me it's time to go. And so if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast.netup.com or subscribe to the podcast at iTunes or SoundCloud at Tech on Tap. And until next week, bye for now. Glenn, you got your pager? Listen here, you guys. <laughs> I've never I, carried a pager in my I, life. Listen, I, uh, when I think about it, honestly, it's been like probably a decade since I have as well. But, you know, four years ago when I was still an ops guy, we called it calling a, carrying a pager when you were on yeah, call. Yeah, but they called your cell phone. Well, yeah, I didn't actually I had, have a yeah, pager. Yeah, we had the paging system that just called he you. He has a beeper. Do pagers still work? I don't even know if you can still get a page. I have, I have no idea. I have Is no it idea. Is me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, All right. Everyone can laugh at me and my old words. Melissa, you are awesome. Thanks for being on this my week. Pleasure.